If you have epilepsy and undergoing epilepsy surgery, you need an MEG to guide the surgery uh, process. Today, we are talking about the neuroimaging technique called magnetoencephalography, or MEG, with the fabulous Omar Janoun, an epileptologist from Henry Ford Health in Detroit, Michigan. Omar will be giving us the lowdown on the amazing ways in which MEG can really zoom in on our brains, figuratively speaking, and positively contribute to the care and treatment of people with epilepsy. Omar, thank you very much for joining us today. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and what got you into neurology, but more specifically epileptology? Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I was fascinated by the brain early on when I was in the medical school and seeing neurological uh, conditions attracted me even more to kind of learn, apply what I learned in medical school and the neuroscience research I was doing into the brain and treating it and honestly I saw a massive amount of patients with epilepsy that there is a huge treatment gap that they are not getting enough treatments and enough diagnostics and enough breakthroughs so I tried to dedicate my life and career to helping people with epilepsy navigating through their condition. That's lovely and also when you help people with an epilepsy you're not solely helping the individual with the diagnosis are you but you're helping their family um, because it so often affects them. Yes, epilepsy is more than just seizures and epilepsy affects the person and can affect their families and their communities. So when we help people with epilepsy, we should take a comprehensive approach and caring for them collectively with their seizures and all the other symptoms other than seizures that they might have. They might have cognitive issues, they might have driving issues, uh, school, uh, disability, all of those things can play a role and can be major contribution to their care. So if we take a comprehensive approach, we will help everyone with epilepsy and their families and communities. Oh, that's so lovely because I know lots of um, clinicians, especially if they don't uh, specialize in the epilepsy, they think epilepsy is just seizures and it's so not the case. Are you an adult? specialist or do you special are you pediatric yes I, I specialize in adult epileptology we were going to talk about and i probably say this wrong and i'm going to read it from my phone right so magnetoencephalography or meg uh, can you tell us a bit about your work with the device and how that can help patients, please? Yes, so magnetoencephalogram or MEG is a quite unique device. So the conventional EEG, the electrodes that we put on the brain and, and, and record, it tests the electrical activity of the brain. However, any wire that has electricity, there will be a magnetic field around it. And this is exactly what MEG device detects. So it will detect the magnetic fields of the brain. And any electricity activity, either normal brain function or epilepsy activity, can be detected by this unique device. And it is super, super sensitive to the point that it can detect the cells talking to each other and give us a very good information about the brain function. Very cool. So, and how would you say it differs from say an MRI because for the past few years a couple of decades even MRI has been like the king or queen of you know neuroimaging would you say that this is better or it's very interesting that the word magneto mean it's the similar ad magnetic resonance imaging MRI but it has nothing to do with MRI it's a completely different device the MEG it's a device it's an antenna that only detects the brain activity does not give any magnetic field does not have any magnetic uh, things in it it's only detected the magnetic activity of the brain however we use MRI 
to require a brain imaging. So we scan the brain with MRI and use those images to plot the activity in the brain that we acquired from MEG. So MEG, MRI, completely different. They are not interactive at all. And a magnetoencephalogram, MEG, only detects the magnetic activity of the brain. However, because it is very, very sensitive, we put the device in a magnetic shielded room, completely isolated from the universe, so that we only detect the brain activity and nothing else. If, if somebody walks down the hall, this device is very sensitive and very accurate and can detect that activity. So we, we completely isolate it from the world to get an excellent signal from the brain only. If somebody ha- um, has an epilepsy or a suspected epilepsy, why would they need uh, an MEG in addition to an MRI? If you have epilepsy and undergoing epilepsy surgery, you need an MEG to guide the surgery uh, process. So how is that working? So if you have epilepsy, usually it is coming from one spot or can be from multiple spots in the brain, and we need the MEG device to locate exactly with the coordinates where the seizure activity is coming from the brain so that we can plan the surgical treatment accordingly. And the second thing that we use the MEG for is functional mapping. So functional mapping is that we map the brain functions through this device. So we can do language mapping. We tell we can have uh, language functions coming in talking, and we will tell you exactly which part of the brain that you use when you talk, so that when we plan the surgery, we don't take any part of the brain that is highly functional, like talking, and then you will not be able to talk. Also, we can do a sensory mapping to know exactly where the sensation is. We can do motor mapping where the movement areas are. We can do auditory mapping. We know exactly where the hearing areas are. And even we can do visual mapping uh, plot where in the brain we can uh, see things. And those are very important because epilepsy can happen in any place in the brain. And if you have epilepsy in an area, it can affect the function. And usually with people with epilepsy, the function can move to other areas of the brain because it's busy with epilepsy. And this way we can make sure that we know where the normal areas of the brain and we do not damage them or affect them when we do our surgery. As I understand it, uh, MEGs are pretty expensive devices um, and not many hospitals have them. Even in the US, UK, not many of them exist. Can you? Is it down to expense? Uh, what is the reason for that? So that's correct. We do not have many MEG centers that, that we should have. So uh, over, the, over the world, we have about 40 centers in the United States that have MEG, 10 centers in the UK, and about about uh, 37 in the Europe, and worldwide we have only 140 centers. So this is wow. very, very, very small amount, and we're talking about millions of people with epilepsy that need this service. The limitations are that, first, the device itself is expensive. It's uh, between three and uh, three to four and a half million dollar equipment, and it needs engineering and, and maintenance. And the most important thing, it needs a highly experienced individual to read the MEG signal and decide what is normal, what is abnormal. So those are the two factors that usually are on the way. But however, those can be 
easily overcome because it is an investment that we put down and we can make the device will stay living for a very long time and also it's it's easy to, to train other doctors to read MEG like I did and others are doing so we can get that done because it is a very valuable service for every patient with epilepsy that is undergoing surgery. So it could effectively not only literally save more lives because people will get more treatment uh, or more effective surgery earlier but actually uh, it could also minimize treatment of the future if people get more effective treatment at an earlier date. Is that correct? That, that is right, because refractory epilepsy is associated with even mortality. Like people can die from their epilepsy if they are... Uh, yeah, it's SUDEP. So this is very important because we want to save lives and MEG can help a lot. So for example, there are 10 indications that an MEG can be very helpful that no other machine or other test can do. Somebody has an, an MRI negative test so it means that you do MRI you don't see any lesion or any spot in the brain any scar right. you can do an MEG and you can locate where exactly the activity of the brain that you can operate on it can ha it can work with people who have uh, no EEG spikes and then you do an EEG you don't see any spikes you do MEG because it's much more precise much more sensitive it can detect the EEG activity and for people who have multiple lesions like tuberous sclerosis have multiple tubers all over the brain and you don't know which one is the hot tuber we call it which one is the tu oh. tuber that can cause seizures so we can do MEG and we can look at exactly which tuber is causing the seizure so that we can take it surgically and sometimes we have a large lesion like a tumor or a big trauma that causes epilepsy and, and you don't know like you know that the seizures are coming from there but you don't know exactly which part of the tumor which part of the uh, scar the seizures are coming from and then you can do an MEG it can look at exactly where this activity is and, and many more so there are lots of indications and ways that it can help. So basically, anyone who's doing an epilepsy surgery should get an MEG to help guide that procedure. So I'm thinking of people right now, after what you've just said, people who have what um, used to be called idiopathic epilepsy, this could be really useful. Also for people who potentially may have already had surgery and it hasn't been effective, or why might that be, or hasn't been as effective as you might want. And then yeah, this could also still be useful for that. Yes, very important because once you cut the skull out, during a surgery that will distort the electricity activity going through the skull and this called breach artifact and that will make the EEG very less accurate in localizing where the activity is however MRI uses magnetic field and magnetic fields if we know some physics it does not get distorted by any field that is going through so it goes through the skull very easily so we use MEG a lot in patients who already had a surgery and the surgery did not work for them because sometimes you you there is like a very blurry line between the temporal and frontal lobes and sometimes you do EEG it tell you it's in the temporal lobe and in fact it is not in the temporal lobe it's in the frontal lobe so you do the wrong surgery oh my gosh it's massive implications if you think about that. So definitely MEG can help. And one of the important things like we're talking about idiopathic epilepsy, especially the idiopathic generalized epilepsy or juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, it can tell you if the epilepsy is due to a generalized epilepsy from all over the brain or it is a deep one focus that can be in the frontal lobe but it shows on the EEG like it's a generalized epilepsy and this can really differentiate by through the MEG system. So Omar, tell us about your research into MEG um, imaging and scanning. 
MEG is a powerful tool that tells you where the activity in the brain is and the connections and interactions between multiple brain areas at the same time. So with this tool, we can do so much research on any brain and neurological conditions because it just it's a tool that is agnostic to any disease, means that it doesn't care what disease process you have, it will give you the information of the, of the brain. For that, we use MEG for so many different conditions to, to exactly know what's going on, what is the disease process. For example, we test people with Alzheimer's disease and localize where the memory areas are. We can test people with multiple sclerosis and how the, the brain changes happen over time. We can test people with schizophrenia. We have studies, a lot of studies with uh, traumatic brain injury. So when the brain has an injury, there are changes in the brain and we can track those changes over time and see how the brain recovers and heals. And we can have biomarkers to understand which brain does recover good and which brain does not recover all through the MEG. One of the interesting stories we have of the research that we have done here at Henry Ford Hospital is autism studies. So we tested people with autism and we, get, we give them uh, pictures and faces and, and interaction uh, testing. So what they did with, with kids with autism, they have lots of occipital activation, means that they just seen the picture. And we, with other neurotypical kind of, uh, kids, we, like kind of normal other kids who are of the same age, when they see pictures, they have lots of activation in the frontal brain, in the frontal, parietal, and temporal. So it's kind of the, the normal brain will look at the emotions and the connections, but the autistic kids will only look at the back of the head, which is just seeing pictures and not interacting with them. So this is was possible because we have done through MEG and this test is like showing us why kids with autism, they have lack of this social skills and, and interaction with other people. And you mentioned schizophrenia and it's making me think about other mental health um, difficulties. And for instance, I've seen numerous papers where they show images of a person with depression and a person without depression. And the activity within their brain is significantly different. Have you been looking into that as well? With depression, uh, yes, the activity usually there will be decreased frontal function. So the frontal function is where where the the, the personality and the, and the control of the emotions happen, and uh, also in the emotional areas in the amygdala and the and the mesial temporal lobe. So there will be increased activity in the amygdala and decreased activity in the frontal lobe. So that's why like the emotions are more exaggerated, and also this is the same happens in PTSD and other psychiatric anxiety disorders. So there will be exaggerated emotional responses and decreased frontal control over those emotions. So lots, lots of other, other testing we can do. Like, for example, we can work on tinnitus. So this is like buzzing sensation that people have all the time in their ear. And we can map where the tinnitus areas in the brain that are really active at a single frequency. And we can like think about treatments for that and even a neurostimulation in that area to kind of suppress the tinnitus and the loud sounds that people are hearing all the time. Oh my goodness, I want one of these machines like in, in my back room or something. Like imagine the lives, you know, people's lives that you could improve and not even solely people with an epilepsy or people, you know, with depression or schizophrenia or whatever, but actually people who don't have a diagnosis in, in anything. Imagine if you could just put them into one of these, you know, MEG machines and identify abnormalities or differences that were not considered necessarily healthy and how you could improve those people's lives. 
It's a machine and biomarker with so many potential applications in so many neurological conditions that should be even investigated more and focused more on in the future, which we're, we're trying to push uh, the envelope in this field and improve the lives of so many people with neurological conditions. So the research that you're doing, how is the information applied for individual patients? And so, for instance, when it comes to surgery and stuff like that. So for surgical treatment, when we, when we have an extra information or where exactly the seizure focus is in the brain, then that will make us have targets for intracranial recording when, when we're trying to put leads inside the brain. So it, it is, it's kind of like um, when you have a seizure on EEG, we'll tell you the seizure is in Europe, in the world, like for example. And then, <laughs> and, and then it's like, yeah, Europe is like large and then we need to like localize it for, uh, more and then the MEG will tell you it is in UK, especially in London. So it's kind of like, it will focus really, really small areas and tell you where exactly you should go. So this way we can have more precise surgeries and more precise treatments instead of like taking the whole temporal lobe or the whole frontal lobe. We can manage with just taking the legion or where the seizure starts only and serve and save all the other areas from damage and memory loss and all the other complications that happen after surgery. Lots of people obviously um, at the moment around the world are suitable for, for instance, a temporal lobe resection. Now I can imagine lots of people and families watching this and even clinicians will be like oh my goodness well we need to get that patient uh you know an MEG then and perhaps not scoop out a load of ice cream or like temporal lobe you know but actually be more specific with the leads but that is not going to be possible for them now like so what would you advise for these people to do if it is possible to look around you I mean, no matter which country you live in or any area of the world, there might be a mag center next to you, but you do not know about that center. So ask your epilepsy doctor, your epileptologist, where, like, can we get mag and can we scan the, the brain? Because there is possibility that you have a mag center next to you and you're not utilizing that. And the first thing. And the second thing, if the mag is completely not available, we can do EEG source imaging, which is much lower quality, but it kind of at least gives you more information than just just doing uh, like a normal EEG, you can do high, high density EEG uh, source imaging, but definitely the mag is like the best way and then EEG source imaging will be the second uh, high density EEG if it's utilized. How long has it been going? How long will the project last? What are anticipated outcomes? We have been doing MEG studies for over like 25 years now in our lab at the Henry Ford Hospital. And uh, we have worked on so many different projects. And usually the project, it can take anywhere between one to, to five years, depends on the recruitment and how many cases we have, we're studying. And uh, we are kind of like working with uh, uh, other people who are interested in traumatic brain injury to study the biomedical markers of traumatic brain injury, especially the minor ones, the TBI, which is concussion only, that does not cause major brain damage, but people are having some sequelae and other uh, effects. And also we're studying uh, the multiple sclerosis changes over time. And this project is running. We expect it to be done by between one and, and three years to have the results. And overall, the results are promising. When we do any preliminary analysis, we start seeing signals in, other, in one brain area or another that is important for the function. And, and really, sometimes we, we discover areas of the brain that we did not even think about being important in this function, but we found it that, yeah, it is important. It is part of the network that solves this problem in the brain. And we kind of like advance the science this way. Isn't it exciting? Like you're in a child when you find out things that you were not expecting and you're like, why, that's so cool. 
school and then you have to learn how to apply that knowledge, right? Yeah, sometimes it's, it's kind of like you scratch your head like, oh, why this area is involved in this function? It's like you never expected that like the mesial frontal lobe is, is involved in this, like solving this problem. But definitely it's kind of a new information and we look deep in the all the functions and the networks, then we say like, yeah, this, this makes sense because now the research in the neuroscience is going from just one area of the brain. It's kind of, oh, the frontal lobe does this, the temporal lobe does this to more of a network approach. Means that there are multiple areas and multiple nodes in the brain. They're all working together to solve one problem or fix one issue and now we're doing network analysis and that is really how the neuroscience is evolving now yeah now i would just want this is probably going to sound really cheesy but for people who think network brain what are you talking about if you think about like the hierarchical structure at work or something like that or like your network on linkedin or twitter or, or something like that <laughs> yeah. it is kind of like similar and you have different people in different areas with different skills different personalities and the brain is very much like that isn't it depending upon the lobe and location and usage would you see that's like a good comparison that's right so like if i ask you if i ask you like uh i've asked you like, what what is the weather today and then like this question it's not like it doesn't go to one area it goes to the area of the of the temporal lobe to hear it and then it will go to the uh, to the memory area and it will go to the Wernicke area where it, it's kind of analyze the meaning of the question and it will go to the Broca area to make the answer and it will make multiple connections in the frontal lobe parietal lobe and occipital lobe even and even go to the cerebellum see like it's one question one answer there are so many areas and nodes in the brain that have to contribute somehow to this uh, very simple task. And this is how we understand the brain now. It's everything is connected and all the areas of the brain are part of a network that function and saves information and solve problems this way. And the more we learn, the more we realize we don't know, right? <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> but that encourages us to get, keep going forward and seeking more funding for research. And yeah, just... I just think it's really, really amazing. And it's that kind of work, the research that you're doing that really kind of lifts us up, whether we be patients, families or other clinicians, you know, because we can't do everything. And so to just hear your story is really, really uplifting. So thank you so much. Thank you. Bye bye. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.